0: everybody i'm ralph benmerke welcome to not that kind of rabbi um by the way having have new blog posts that are available on our patreon account patreon.com slash ntkr if you're interested in supporting the podcast i'm interested in having your support so that'd be a wonderful thing um what a strange time uh of my blog posts uh, i wrote it this morning and i was really thinking about In Lytton, British Columbia, mostly indigenous community, uh, the temperature rose to 49 and a half degrees Celsius. 49 and a half degrees Celsius. And nobody should be surprised because the earth is slowly but surely catching fire. Australia last year just literally caught fire. A continent caught fire the west coast of the United States, the prairies right now in Canada are parched, ready to be scorched. Animals are dying. People are dying. Over 700 sudden deaths in British Columbia happened in the last week. And yet, as somebody pointed out, if your paycheck depends on continuing the status quo, then you're not gonna wanna change the status quo. It's your paycheck. So it's not going to be up to individuals to sort their stuff into blue bins and green bins, and that's not gonna help anyone in the situation. But one thing that I find is a gaping hole is any sense of a a large movement for eco-spirituality. That if this is the creation, and we are supposed to be in service to that creation, then we're on the wrong track. It's often quoted that man, man, has dominion over nature in biblical texts. Um, I don't go that way. Uh, That's a pyramid, and we're at the top, and everything serves us. It's like when people shoot bears in Banff when they build a subdivision. Well, there was a bear in our, our subdivision. Yeah, no, no, you were in the bear's subdivision you killed it because it got in your way so we're completely numb to what's going on around us and spiritually we, we don't it's particularly in western uh, religious practices very little connection we, we we should exist in a circle of an ecosystem in which we appear occasionally in relationship and in balance with others in stewardship and there's a lot of talk about a lot of lip service about seventh generation thinking in white Canada. But it doesn't exist. Seventh generation thinking doesn't exist in white Canada. So what we really have is an extractive kind of economics where we take from the earth as much as we possibly can. And we take from people as much as we possibly can to benefit the few. And we have to find a way to get our way out of this. And I I think, you know, uh, clergy, I just did a a session with um, some clergy, uh, Christian clergy, who were wanting someone to facilitate a conversation about the fact that their pews have emptied out, that people aren't coming anymore, and they're not quite sure what the value proposition of a brick-and-mortar church is for them. And I I think until we start addressing the existential angst and, and anxiety that Pandemic aside, this will be the global crisis that will consume much of what we're doing in the next 15 years. Until we do something with that and find a way to to say that we have the humility to bend our knee to the unbelievable awe of creation and therefore respect and treat it with respect, we're not going to be able to get out of this thing. Uh, You can't buy your way out of climate change at this point, but you can find a way to have an eco-spiritual movement that includes everybody, everybody in a walk together. Um, So I, I just wanted to share that because I've spent some of my life, I'd say the last 13 years of my life, really trying to figure out how to communicate the climate crisis to people. And I feel like it doesn't matter, they're not listening. It's like, but it's a nice day today. What does it matter? I hope somehow we find our tipping point a lot faster than we're going to at the present rate of speed, which is not fast at all. So there's my my thought for you, for the people of Lytton, BC, who, by the way, after it was 46.5%, uh, 49.5 Celsius, the entire town just caught fire and disappeared. So Either we figure this out or we suffer the consequences. All that said, I stumbled upon my guest for the podcast today while looking at some things online, and I absolutely love her story. So I wanted you to meet her, and I wanted to spend some time with her. Her name is Nagasette, and she is with me from Montreal, if I'm correct. Hi. Hi. How are you? (laughs) (laughs) Tired. <laughs> <laughs> Are you often tired?
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, just the other day, um, I was able to put together a um, honoring indigenous children march in, uh, in Montreal. And um, I wasn't sure how many people would show up and we had 10,000. So I'm still tired from that because <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't expecting that many, but what I wanted to do was get traditional, um, speakers together to give some wisdom and some um, you know like we had Kevin Deere and what you had just shared, he shared a very similar message, right? But more from a, you know, an perspective um, and, and um, it's the feedback that I received where that, you know, the non-Indigenous people that showed up found it, you know, really humbling and, and um, very thankful to receive these messages because, you know, all the different um, sort of realities facing Indigenous people is really difficult. And unless we try to find some way of um, sort of healing and, and having some kind of, uh, grasp on the situation and, and sort of figuring out how to, how to move forward, then we sort of freeze up. And I didn't want that for the community. And um, I didn't want that for the non-Indigenous community too, because they're, they're feeling like, well, we want to do something and we're not sure what we should do. And just listening was awesome.
0: Yeah. What was it like to see 10,000 people show up for you?
1: Um. <laughs> I mean, it was, it's, it's hard to sort of wrap your head around it, right? Because when I started, uh, I showed up an hour early and people were slowly coming in. And then I was sort of sitting on the steps. I was at the Jean Mans Park near the big statue. And, um, you know, I had, a, I had like three other people that helped me do this. uh, Jaggi Singh, uh, Jen Jerome, and Amy Streamer. Um, So what we did was we kind of coordinated all the media interviews ahead of time every 10 minutes. So I was sitting down, and then when I stood up, that's when I saw the crowd of people. Um, And then I just jumped right into it. So I didn't even introduce myself. I was just like task-oriented, like bring on each uh, speaker and, you know, uh, making sure that... um, you know that that everything was well coordinated and then when you see 10,000 you're thinking this could be a disaster (laughs) if people aren't following the protocols and you know going where they need to go and everything was so peaceful and that was you know the police actually helped us which I have to give them kudos because that's not always our experience with them but they helped us sort of guide people um it was very emotional. We had a lot of really like amazing singers like Lyssa P. Isaac, uh, Sylvia Cloutier and their songs, you know, just made people cry because they were about the children. So we needed a time to sort of come together and grieve, but also a time to sort of like get ready because there's more coming. So I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do the next time. You know, like I know any day now they're going to be talking about, you know, another mass grave. And uh, I, I won't, um, like I'll have to... D- figure it out once i get there what i'm gonna do um because i was obviously like very affected i mean i'm from saskatchewan right so when they found you know the 715 children that's they could be my relatives right like so so anyway i'm just rambling
0: not really (laughs) um (laughs) if this is rambling you're Ramble on, my friend. Ramble on. <laughs> I'm uh, sure
1: you have like specific questions for me, right? You so, know,
0: um, I've been interviewing people for 35 years, and what I've learned is to just be present with the person you're with, as opposed to, oh, thank you, question three, uh, because you stop listening. It's like what you said when the when the elders shared wisdom at the event. You're either listening or you're not, and if you're not, uh-huh. then it's just a big party in an event and look at us and we're here, but some of that wisdom I hope could be, what what was impactful for you in the wisdom that you heard? I know you were running around, but.
1: Yeah, no, I was standing right next to him. What was really difficult was he had his, um, he had his water drum and he had his turtle shell. So he was holding both of them. So I was holding the microphone to his face. And he kept moving around, so I was like, <laughs> it was really difficult. I was like, I don't know how I got into this. So I was totally there. But what I, I liked was he how he how people wear the the color orange, you know, to commemorate. Um, you know, he he put that in relation to fire. You know, and all these spirits are like fire, and they've all sort of risen now. In terms of um, people know that they exist, right? So I thought that was really, um, really great. And he also talked about the fact that, you know, he saw that if we don't do better, that we will basically all die. If we don't, you know, start taking care of the environment, if we don't start, you know, listening to the teachings. And, you know, I know that you've mentioned this, the seventh generation, and that is something, and you know, what's kind of interesting about the seventh generation is they say that, My generation, the Sixty Scoop generation, the generation that was taken away and found their way back, that they will, you know, be part of leading the way. So when we talk about the seventh generation, they talk about um, trying to put the earth in a good place, not for your first or your second, but the next seven generations. And I've been, you know, I've been running the Native Women's Shelter now for over 20 years. Well no I've been the executive director since 2004 but I've been there since 1999 um and you know there's it's it's stepping stones it's like I wasn't you know incredibly successful at the beginning but you know as time came on I was able to make more change within the shelter more programming and then it just sort of rippled out into the community where I have multiple projects and I just opened another shelter called Resilience Montreal, and we just got $7.2 million from that, from the provincial and federal government. And I'm like, I don't know if I can do this again. <laughs> it's it's well, you really know what, kind You know, of,
0: what, something interesting as you were talking about your time in this organization was perhaps within a lifetime itself, there are seven generations of growth in a person, you know? Perhaps there's there's that too, that the person you were and then the person you become and then the person you become and then the person you become, right? Never you thought know, of it before.
1: I I know that, you know, just in December, the Montreal Gazette uh featured me uh as uh people to watch for, right? That's like the name of the article they do it every year. So first I was like, okay, that sounds stockish. <laughs> watch for, like I'm pretty shy. And like, I don't really, anyway. Um, and then, you know, it says, uh, you know, something about Naguset and she gets things done. And then I'm wondering, is this like a self-fulfilling prophecy? Cause after that came the 7.2 million. And, you know, we also did like this really big, um, you know, justice for Joyce. So I did another rally and we had like, I don't know, maybe like 5,000 people that showed up uh, during COVID red zone in Montreal. So that was huge. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm never going to be able to top that. Like, I should just retire. And then just, you know, on Thursday, we had 10000000 million. I'm like, oh, wait a minute.
0: <laughs>
1: I'm going to have to probably try to do better, right? But it was never my intention to try to have a number. What I did, which was different, was I did a lot of interviews beforehand, and I asked for help. I asked for people to come out and support us, and they did in in like huge numbers so right. i think if you ask for help you get it that's hard for me to ask for help i'm usually i'll do it myself
0: <laughs> yeah well it's hard for a lot of people because yeah. it's um, it requires a humility i don't mm-hmm. mean oh don't mind me i mean it requires you to know where you should be in this should i be leading should i be asking for help should i be doing both which one in what order you know there's a lot humility is a the gift of knowing where you are and where you should be I think you know I wanted to talk to you about um being taken from your family as as a small child and your life growing up in Montreal um if you could just let people know a bit of what your journey has been
1: yeah (laughs) Yeah, not a happy story. It's really not a happy story because you have to understand that my mother went to residential school. She went to the Prince Albert Residential School and her experience shaped her. And she, uh, you know, ended up having uh, seven children and all of them were placed into care. But for whatever reason, I was the second to last child. So by then the 60 scoop sort of happened. Um, And I was in a foster home with my sister, Sonia. Um, and we were lucky. We were like, it was, it was great that we were together. But then the social worker came by and took pictures and felt like um, I was, uh, you know, adoptable. But Sonia, who's three years older, had too much, um, I guess, I don't know, She too much baggage. So she wasn't considered adoptable. So then I left, you know, in the middle of the night. I was taken from, uh, we were in Thompson, Manitoba at the time. Uh, to Montreal and put into this new family I'm, I'm just turning three years old and I'm like what am I doing here um, and it was really strange and I think what was hard was that when I arrived I already had three years of neglect and abuse so I wasn't a really sweet bubbly child I was a guarded and angry and you know kind of mute like I didn't talk I was confused um you know and I, my parents are like well what do we do with this <laughs> was just, she was so cute in the picture she's not so cute <laughs> now so there was definitely you know sort of like a lot of head scratching and um i and they, guess
0: they were jewish
1: yeah yeah they are they still it, are <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but
0: you you certainly you weren't but you became
1: yes yes well that was the thing i mean my parents adopted twice they didn't think they could have children so they had my brother neil and, um, you know, through the same Jewish family services, uh, and at that time, they were giving out just, you know, like white children. But then when the AIM program was established, um, they took all the pictures of the white children out and said, okay, from now on, we're only giving out Native kids. And they do this across Canada, right? So, um, so Jewish family services had a lot of children that they were sort of giving out, that's how you want to put it I don't yeah. know but there were also other like the Bill marie Child Protection Services also had the same sort of book and that was um, sort of distributed around Montreal to I guess non-Jewish adoption agencies so there's a lot of 60 scoop kids uh, you know in Montreal but a lot of them like I can think of like 15 Jewish Indians and that's what I call myself I know people are like why do you call yourself an Indian well still on my Indian status right I'm still yeah. have an Indian I- card so I don't care like, you know, I call myself yeah, yeah. a Jewish Indian. It's just the way I, I sort of express myself. So, um, yeah, so so I think the social workers didn't really have much um, knowledge and how to sort of, you know, counsel the parents taking these kids. And they just felt it's part of the assimilation. So, you know, they told my parents, don't tell them anything about her culture. Uh, tell. And I had a blonde brother and a blonde sister. So they were like, well, she's dark, so tell her... her that she's Israeli (laughs) you know and and don't encourage her to like you know retrace her steps so my parents went with that and but they also had very negative thoughts of indigenous people so in Montreal there's a place called Um, and and what happened was during my childhood, I eventually went to this private school that had a large indigenous, they had a lot of Mohawk kids. And I was Mm. like, Oh my God, you look like me. I was like, so excited. And then I became friends with a lot of the kids and I became like a sponge. I'm just like, you know, teach me about the Mohawk, you know, language and your culture. And I, you know, like they were just like, they were kind of like the coolest kids in the school. And I'm like, I'm kind of like you. Um, And and I went home as one day and I had picked up the the Mohawk um, sort of uh, accent and that did not go well. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like, do not turn into one of those. And my father, who, you know, made quite a bit of money, um, he had a Mercedes. And you have to understand that Kahnawake at that time was not the, you know, very wealthy community it is now. Back then it was, it was, they were going through a harder time. So my father drove into Gunawagi um, with his Mercedes and I had my brother and sister next to me. I have to say I was about 12 years old at this time. And he was like, you want to tell people you're native, get out of the car, go. This is what native people do. And he would look at one of the, the houses. He goes, you know, the people here get welfare and if they never ate, Uh, or never bought like clothes, they still could never afford the Mercedes that you're driving in. This is is your reality. So you want to be proud of it, get out of the car, live here. And I almost did, except a group of Mohawk people started to follow the car going, you're not from here, so you need to leave. And he drove out. And I remember my brother and sister, like kind of turning and looking at me as if like, why do you have to be such a problem? Like, why can't I just, so, you know, there was this sort of cultural shame that I was sort of like, you know, you're, you're, you should just, you know, like have a bat mitzvah, you should, you know, just, (laughs) you know, go out with Jewish boys and you should just, you know, like blend and, you know, and honestly, like none of like I remember I used to go out with uh, a guy who has your last name and his parents were like mortified when I came over. Cause like, ah, ah, ah she's not a real Jew, oh, wow. <laughs> you know? So like, I was like, the Moroccans look like me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: But I was still not really accepted. So anyway, I, uh... so,
0: so there was never, so there's part of you that's being acculturated as a Jew. And there's the other yearning part of you that wants to connect to being uh, indigenous. This is, this must have been, okay, so there's one piece here that makes it all so much better than it could have been, which is your bubby. Uh.
1: So when I was adopted, you know, um, you know, my bubby was around and she would just like every time I walked into her into the room, her her face would light up. She was like always thrilled to see me, and and I was not used to having a family member that like adored me. So we became very close, right? Um, anytime I needed to talk about something or just needed some positive input or whatever, you know, uh, it was almost like a treat to go and spend time. You know, sometimes you know how my parents would go to Florida during like the holidays, and my bubby would have a place, and we would go there, and that was just like awesome. I was always you know, very much looking forward to spending time with her. But things were so hard in the household that I had to leave. It got to a point where I knew I was really much a countdown. I knew at 18, I was allowed to leave home. So I was, you know, counting the days. And then when I left, um, you know, I really kind of was trying to figure out where my road is, what is my direction? What is going on? What do I do? How do I live in a world where, you know, I, I don't really know my native culture. But do I just forget about it and just blend into society I, I like it was a very confusing time for me and um you know I, after spending many years, you know after my I moved out with my bubby she got uh she got cancer she got sick and i she was my only connection <clears throat> so. She decided that um, we should really make some uh, concrete steps to find my biological family so that when I um, when she passed away that I would have someone. So um, we wrote lots of letters. and i had some paperwork from i was able to find my parents kind of covered up all the paperwork but i was able to figure it out and i had some links back to my uh my my biological family so we ended up writing to like you know like it's it's kind of a convoluted story but i think i had something like the uh, 18 brothers and sisters right <laughs> my mother had 7 and then my you know father had you know uh 11 Oh, so um, you know, oy, I oy
0: indeed. <laughs> <laughs> it's right the <so>, Yeah.
1: <laughs> so I wrote to all of them and one person wrote back. One still lived in the same household and remembered me and said, "Wow, you know, I used to change your diapers as a baby." So this is a brother that I had. His name is Richard Murray. Um, and he he was actually kind of the same age as my mother. Okay, so my mother married john murray she was a young woman he had already had 11 children with another pre-woman and then she passed away so then he married my mom so i have like brothers and sisters that are people think are my parents anyway
0: right.
1: so he was the one who gave me the connection back to sonia because sonia had been devastated when i left had been looking for me had the same paperwork, so knew that I was in Montreal and was writing me letters. And she's like, "Please answer me." And my parents just ripped up the letters. They, she, I what
0: never. What were your parents trying to do? Were they trying to say, if you uh, decide that you embrace your indigenous life, you will have a horrible life, and we don't want that for you? I mean, was it a perverse way of trying to say you'll be better off like this? Yeah, I don't want. I that? think
1: so. I think it's that reverse psychology kind of thing, right? I think they really thought that, you know, if I married a nice Jewish boy, I would be in Florida. I would have, like, my parents, you have to understand, they're very wealthy. They just assumed I would, like, marry into all that. But I always felt, like, in their house, which was, like, a nice, really, you know, beautiful house, that it was like a museum. Like right. it was very pretty, don't touch
0: anything.
1: Like I never felt comfortable, you know, like I was, it was like a relief to leave. Like I, I could not see myself in that world. And some of the, even the hierarchy were like the, you know, the men were in charge and the women sort of like never sort of spoke out too much or whatever. It's like, mm, no, I can't, <laughs> no, I can't do it. Right. So I, it made me be very independent where I'm like, I'm never going to depend on a man. I'm going to, you know, um, you know, open, always make my own money I'm gonna try to be you know independent and of course it took many many years but you know when my bubby was able to sort of reunite me and my uh, my family um it took a couple of years before my my no a little time before my um I went up to visit them so I met my biological mom and I met Sonia which was awesome and my brother Wayne and uh, my brother Richard a couple of of siblings and and cousins and um and that was really great, but you know, I live in Montreal, and they still live in like Manitoba and and everywhere else uh, throughout, uh, you know, sort of the West. Um, and and it actually sort of gave me when I got my Indian status, like you see the picture, like I am the proudest looking Indian (laughs) in that picture, getting my Indian status, because my Indian status allowed me to go back and get an education. I didn't have to, you know, knock on my parents' door and be like, please give me some money. I never asked for anything. Once I left that door, I I became, you know, I was poor, but, you know, I was on my own. But when I got my Indian status, I went back to school and I got a degree and I got a degree in human relations. So it's just like the line I use is now I can get along with my parents. I have <laughs> <a degree." laughs>
0: so I, so your parents, are they still, they're both still alive. Your adoptive parents. <laughs> do you talk with them at all? Not in the least. And your siblings no. from that family, do you talk to them at all?
1: No. So I had one brother and one sister And I think my parents were so insulted that I left. They were like, you're going to leave us for that? (laughs) They were just, so I was cut out. I was completely cut out. And the last time I saw them was at my brother's, uh, my brother Neil passed away. Um, Probably now, Kisten was like two, so 12 years ago. And it was a cousin that told me, like my parents don't even get in contact with me. So I had to crash the funeral. Oh my. And it was really awkward because people knew who I was and I'm standing all the way at the back of the end and people actually got up and let me sit down where oh. all the media family was in front. And, you know, I talked to my mother and I was like, well, can I come to the Shabbat? She's like, Nope. Wow. So I'm like, well, what did I do exactly? Right.
0: Yeah. Like,
1: and it almost seems like the fact that I, cause they used to tell me all the time, you're going to grow up, you're going to be a drug addict and you're going to be a prostitute. Cause that's what your people do. So I was really sure that was my way, but I I think maybe that was the reverse psychology or I don't know, maybe they were just cruel. I don't know, but. Or but.
0: maybe they just were ignorant uh, <laughs> about what they'd taken from you and thought, don't you understand? We're doing you this great favor. And you were saying, don't you understand? I need to be me. I, yeah. I, I can't be a, a a pretend. Is there anything in your life now that resonates from the Jewish side of your life?
1: I I think so, for sure, right? I think, okay, I would. my father, my adopted father is a very successful businessman. So I must have picked up something there. Because, you know, I can run an organization. And I'm very, you know, um, you know, I have a staff of, you know, about 25. You know, I used to have a TV show called indigenous power. And I used to like, you know, produce and, and create and write all the scripts. And like, you know, that's sort of like, I mean, I'm not. I'm in a nonprofit business, but I was very organized and very focused, and knowing exactly what I need to do, and able to sort of implement and and all that. So I and, and I, you I,
0: think it, that's kind of a Jewish thing. I, I, I sort of see it as it's just he happened to be entrepreneurial and did all those things. But it, it's almost the same trope that if you're Jewish, you're supposed to be successful and have a lot of money and do things well. And so I don't know if that's much better than saying if someone's indigenous, they're going to be this, they're going to be that. And You know, like when people well, find out that Jews live in, that there are Jews who live in poverty, that there are Jews yeah. that are alcoholic, that are Jews yeah. that abuse uh, their, their their families. Um, they're like, oh, no, not us. And I think, no, no, of course us. Of course, everybody is us. So but is there anything think, spiritual that you got from being, you know, from bat Mitzvah and Hebrew school and being Jewish?
1: Oh well, no. Thing is I, I okay. So anyways, if I could give my parents any kudos, that was it. <laughs> and you just took it. You took it from them. <laughs> well,
0: <laughs> Sorry. well, because to me it sounded like, oh, this is the stereotype of what Jews are. Jews are people who are good at I don't beating. know.
1: I, I don't know if that's the stereotype. I mean, you know, the Ben Mergy guy I went out with—he was not rich.
0: No, but he's Moroccan right? like me, so we were oh. we were working class. We're not oh. Ashkenazi Jews; we're the different ones.
1: Oh, okay. Anyway, so <laughs> I don't know others. if you can really paint them off one color there. So that no, of
0: course you know, not. Yeah, I'm just so, wondering if I, there was a spiritual piece from being Jewish, or did what, did, that, did that really just sort of never really happen for you?
1: Um. Like you if know, you went into a synagogue
0: to... now yeah. and sat there for a high holiday service, would you, would yeah. it resonate with you when you heard the show? Yes, far
1: absolutely. It? No, no, no. You have to understand that, you know, um, I went to Hebrew school, like, you know, uh, junior congregation at the Sharish Mayim when I was a little kid. (laughs) And then usually Friday nights, we would go to synagogue. And that was always, even when we lived in Dollard, because they moved to Westmount later on, but we always did that. So I was already sort of put into the culture and I loved it. I thought it was great. I have... I have a lot of respect for the Jewish culture and, you know, sometimes through the Native Women's Shelter, I still get invited to, to synagogues just to sort of speak to the congregation about what they can do for indigenous people. And I'm very comfortable sitting there. It's the only religion that I uh, that I know. Hmm. So I didn't like, you know, I still consider myself Jewish. I'm not really a practicing Jew, but um, so I have a story for you, which is kind of funny, but not really funny.
0: <laughs> I'd like to hear that story.
1: I had a friend, okay, but I, anyways, before I go on to that story, (laughs) my Bubby, though, like, you know, she was incredibly kind and giving and warm and all those traits, um, you know, came, like, I absorbed that, because I had a dysfunctional Jewish mother and a dysfunctional, you know, native mother, and none of my parenting skills came from them, because if they did, they, my kids would be in youth protection now, right? right, but so I take all of that right? All that kindness that she gave me, right? That I, I, that made me a better person. But a friend of mine <laughs> invited me over for, for Passover. And when they invited me over for Passover, like, I don't drink alcohol. So they always give, you know, glasses of wine throughout, right? Through the Seder. So I'm not drinking the alcohol. And it's a mixed group of, you know, my friends, uh, her husband, other friends, and they're sitting down and they're looking at me and they're like, are you sure you're native because you look like you could be a little european and how come your people like you know the jewish people were able to like survive the holocaust and and sort of get it together how come your people can't get it together and then later on people were were drinking and then all of a sudden they were like hey kimo sabi
0: i'm
1: not coming back i was like i'm out of here and i had a i had a friend who is native who wanted to come up I'm like no no no, no. <laughs> I'm not so that was kind of discouraging but I don't think they did it with ill will but I didn't feel comfortable so I'm very I'm very um and sometimes like now that people know who I am I feel sometimes like I'm a freak show like what right. is it about you that made you succeed you know and of course it's my puppy 100% right Right. because you have to understand that my biological family has not done well and even when I found my sister Sonia we ended up finding a, my other sister Rose who was younger than me who was in Europe and we had a reunion and the knowledge of everything that was taken away was too much for my sister Sonia and she committed suicide almost three years ago and she left me this like video where she was like you know, if you're watching this, it's because I'm dead. And I need you to be um, the voice for the 60 scoop. And I need you to tell people how damaging it is and how I can't relate to my own children because of what happened. And that was, oh, mm. you know, it's like, my I don't have a happy story. <laughs> it's, yeah. you know, I mean, I get to keep my children, right? Like, you know, and I, I work like, I work as, as hard as I can. And now I have that extra sort of um, my sister's dying wish, you know. So so what was kind of nice was that I did that documentary and they put a picture of her in it and they didn't realize it was her. It was actually uh, they thought it was me. But I was like, oh, she's in the doc. Because what, what's so hard for me about that documentary was my bubby led me to Sonia so my Bubby who had unconditional love for me led me to Sonia and then she died and then Sonia died Hmm. so when I did that doc you know it's it's the realization that those that love me the most are no longer here
0: well they are (laughs) though they are in a certain way like they're part of who you are
1: well, I mean, I believe in the spirit world. So honestly, when I did the march of the last week, you know, I smudged, right? So I use, um, I burn sage and we use that. The sage is supposed to be your prayers that go all the way up to the creator. So he hears them. So I smudged and I asked for my Bubby and my sister, my sister Sonia to be with me that day.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, they say, may, the, may their memory be a blessing. And that... You know, your Bubby and Sonia, Sonia, who suffered the intergenerational trauma that she couldn't survive. And, you know, the insensitivity of the people at that Seder to say, we survived. We, everyone who can survive also carries with them the trauma and passes on that trauma. I mean, even your parent, your adoptive parents would embody that trauma and say, you know, we're so uh, conditioned that things could go very badly that look at, we're, we're, we've made it, so you, you can't drag down into that. Uh, so everybody has their wounds and how we tend to the wound. And you've been tending to the wound, it would seem not just through your own personal journey, but you decided to take on a work you didn't need to take on, that you decided to work with women, indigenous women, and, and and do meaningful work. What has that work brought to your life, do you think? And I know it's hard, That work, but what has it brought to your life?
1: Um, Like it's many years that I'm doing it, so it's it's sort of like um, creating a path for others so that they can succeed. So what does that look like? (laughs) And it's it feels like you know because of systemic discrimination. that it touches everything. So in terms of like youth protection, and uh, you know the police, and the court system, and you know the overrepresentation of Indigenous people in jail, and and health, and everything. So what I try to do is I've really expanded my job description at the shelter because like it doesn't say anywhere do a march. <laughs> like, I just do that on my <laughs> own, right? But you know, like we're able to really um, create. Um, sort of safe spaces within the city. I used to think that at the Native Women's Shelter, when the women came in, I would make them safe. But then I realized that they would have to actually leave. And when they leave, if the world is not safe for them, what can I do? So it's why I have, you know, contribution agreements with the city of Montreal. And I had a collaboration agreement with youth protection and one with the police and, you know, like sort of agreements saying that we're going to get, we're going to get along. They don't usually honor those agreements though. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like come on <laughs> you signed it do something right it's it's a constant struggle and it's a constant sort of going back to the table and trying to make change but um you know like I we're like in the process now of opening a second stage housing we started building it in um in April, uh, April 26th, just of this year. So it's going to take 18 months, but this is a secondary location. So if you think of the shelter being a crisis first stage, when you get out of your crisis, you can now go to the second stage housing where it'll be fully furnished and beautiful apartments and, um, places for women and children and or single women. And it'll have like a, um, a special room that is for the community, so we can have ceremonies and we can invite guest speakers and trainings for the women, and it'll have the Dr. Julian Foundation. So this is social pediatrics. So I've been working with Batcha for more than you know ten years now. Batcher is the English Youth Protection uh, in Montreal. So it's over ten years that I've been working with them, and I've been trying to sort of create. Um, Or collaborate with services, um, or create our own services, or try to change the way it works. And we've basically had the door shut in our face time and time again. And after 10 years of trying to, you know, create something with them, now we're just going to be like, no worries, we'll create it ourselves. (laughs) Don't hurt yourself. Sit down. (laughs) We'll just do it. So we're creating the Dr. Julian Foundation in the building and we're going to extend that to the community. So anyone who is having issues with youth protection will now have a team of doctors and lawyers and social workers and whatever it is that they need in order to get that child back. They'll be supported by professionals and that's going to be better than like, it's almost like if you have a team of professionals around you, when you walk into youth protection, youth protection is going to be like, oh, (laughs) we're not going to try to pull the wool over your eyes. We're going to have to actually just follow the mandate because in our experience, when we lose our children, even if we follow the mandate up to a year, they still don't give kids back. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's sort of like, I feel like I only have one life. I am 50 years old, so I'm, you know, not going to be around forever. Um, I don't have, I don't know how much time I have left on this planet. So I have to just try to do the best that I can until, you know, until I'm called back to, you know, the creator, like, I don't know how long that's going to be. I'd like to say, you know, it's another, I once saw a psychic and she told Mm -hmm. me I was going to live to be an old lady, like, like 90. So anyways. I got 40 years,
0: <laughs> yeah. so I still have
1: to do as much as I can in the next 40 years, right? Yeah.
0: Um,
1: and I think that when you hold a, um, a title like executive director, then you gotta use that title because it's almost like um, like, a, like a cape, like I'm an executive director. I wanna talk to your executive director and we need to, you know, right, it's more right. of a serious titles but I truly use it the, to the best of my abilities, right? And and right. I people ask me to talk a lot right, right like right. nathan you know um he was friends with uh he used to be partners with with anthony bourdain nathan thurnberg oh, he yeah. has a, he has a podcast and he i was the first like native person that he interviewed from like canada um and and you know i i will always say yes to these kind of things because one day nobody's going to care about listening to me
0: so, so <laughs> you know so it's i'm trying to one of the things that I've always found difficult is how to, you know, I have a few friends who are indigenous and uh, I always say, I don't know how we cross the bridge to, to be together on, on the things we need to be together on because there's so much justifiable mistrust of the other in the native community and in the indigenous community. There's so much of, uh, here they come, it can't be good. That how do you become a uh, how can people like me become effective allies? Like one thing, okay. Here's one thing that has driven me nuts. Uh, I've I've worked with uh, certain politicians over the years, and I remember when it became really um, in fashion to do a a land acknowledgement, and I really found myself going. So now you get up and you say, I want to say that we're on the lands of the Mississauga of the, first, and it's, of the new credit and, that, and I just think, so what? So, so you've said that, it's out of the way, now let's get on with business. And I found it. I would have, I think if I was Indigenous, I would have said, never mind, never mind. You know, acknowledging that it's unceded territory and that you broke the treaty is not exactly a way to start, you know, and then let's eat. You know, it doesn't really help. So how do people on the other side of this, the other Canadians, how do we end up being able to walk home with you? How do we do that?
1: Um, there's so many ways. And and I always ask people to uh, go with what their strength is, right? So, like, you don't want me to do your bookkeeping because I'm not good with numbers right? <laughs> So, but I mean, the idea of just doing it sort of like, you know, it, in, in a small way. So if you are, wherever you live, if there is, you know, an Indigenous organization, um, you know, why don't you volunteer? Why don't you, if you can donate money or do a fundraiser, if you see homeless people that are on the street and most homeless people, at least in Montreal, were the highest uh, population that are on the street, like the smallest population in Quebec, You know, if you see someone there, why don't you like offer them a sandwich or a gift card or say hello? Because usually people just walk by really, really quickly. Mm -hmm. You know, why don't schools, you know, um, sort of get together and either do like a like baking or, or some kind of thing where they go into the streets and they feed the people on the streets, right? Because there's sort of this like fear of the homeless that they're going to come out and hurt you. But most of the time, they are so grateful. So, with my kids, I do that all the time. We go downtown and take them to go see like a movie or to buy clothes or whatever. We go out for lunch and whatever is. Leftover, we go into the metros, and my kids run around the metro, and they (laughs) start—they're so funny. They run around and they start evaluating the people that are on the ground, going, "That one looks like he has a job. Don't give it to him. That one looks like he's having a hard time. Give him the food." And the look on the face of the the people that receive the food—they're so happy and so grateful, right? So my kids sort of get like, "Wow, I've done something good," and they as well get to eat because it's really hard to like be on the streets. Then there's the TRCs, like, please read them. <laughs> they have like a section that's, you know, if you don't want to read the entire thing, they have sort of just like the, the 94 right? sort of short little ones. You can read that. Um, you can look to see why people, like the TRCs were made for institutions. They were not made for Indigenous people. Every institution is supposed to read them and apply them. Asked people why they're not. If you work in a hospital, are you applying those TRCs? Or if you work in a hospital, are you applying Joyce's principle, right? And then in like Quebec, they have the 142 recommendations for the Viennes Commission. Anyone doing anything about it? Okay, so maybe, you know, uh, Ian Lafreniere, who's the minister of Secretary de saint done, he's doing some, but mostly people aren't. Why not? Like, why do we have all these reports made out to us? Like, I testified for three days at the Vance Commission, so I took, you know, a lot of risk to go and to, you know, it takes a lot of effort, and they do a report, and they put it on a shelf. Same thing for missing and murdered. 231 calls to justice. They don't call it recommendations. I think if you call it calls to justice, it's going to make people do something. Ignored, ignored. So... Starting to look into things like that, it depends how much time you have on your hands. The easy thing to do is to support the organizations that are doing the work. Mm -hmm. And if you have the capacity to do more, um, then do more because, you know, you are on Indigenous land, right? And it is a gift to be here and and you don't have to be here. You can take that boat and go back, right? But you're here. So when you're here, (laughs) (laughs) help us out a little bit doesn't have to be like going to Attawapiskat and getting them clean water. Yeah. But if you know how to, please help. Because it's 10 years that they don't have clean water and it's it's horrible how we're living like in a third world country. Well, it's you know, environmental
0: in... racism is what it is.
1: <sighs> yeah, I don't know how I get out of bed some days.
0: How do you get out of bed? Like...
1: Um, well, it's some days are harder than others, right? I mean, I'm just... Uh... You know what, and I feel like a lot of people also depend on me because like even for this last March, I didn't have the energy to do it. Um, But people were writing and I had already done something for the 215 at the mountain. Just it was very, you know, it was more just sort of organic in terms of inviting people with drums to come and sing. Um, And people were like, can you do that again? And I was like, I don't know, can I? (laughs) Okay. And then I talked to one of my colleagues Marty Miller. And she was like, yeah, you should do it. You should do it on July 1st. And just like that, I'm like, OK, I can do it. <laughs> and then I bring in, you know, like really strong volunteers that have the capacity to do it. And then we just plow through. Right. So you kind of have to step up. And it's not easy, but it's never been easy for us, right? And, and um, you know, and I have children and I want to be like a good role model for my children. And I want to make sure that it's going to be easier for them, you know, when they get older, because, you know, I've got 14, 11 and, and eight. So they're still quite young. Um, um, you know, I, when I did the justice for Joyce, I brought my 14 year old and he was thrilled. He was so proud to be there to meet all the speakers. His job is to clean the microphone and give it to the next speaker. But he really enjoyed it. So I try to bring them to do more advocacy work with me just so that they can see it. And uh, my uh, middle son, Mokiesis, he wants to do what I do for a living. He wants to run a shelter. So that's good. Right. But they don't have to, right? they can do it. No, no, but want.
0: I mean, you know, look, we, we all get dealt our hand. And for some of us, it's um, it's too much. And we don't really, we can't really get above it. And for others, we survive and for others we succeed and thrive in a certain way. And, you know, what you pass on to your children, the trauma that was passed on to you, for, for a lot of us, I think it's just, how do I minimize as best I can that 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 ability to pass on trauma and maximize the ability to pass on hope and, and inspiration. Um, and, you know, when you spoke of Sonia and you spoke of your Bubby, uh, you know, those pieces, They're physically gone, but I can feel them just listening to you, Mm. you know, that there has to be a life that means something, that that you're not just here to take up space, that you have to do something, and and you do something, and I'm sure it takes a hell of a lot out of you, but then every once in a while, I'm sure you look up and see the work of, of, of helping a woman and her children, you know, to go back into a society not as broken as when you got them, mm-hmm. you know, that that's not nothing. That, that's that's a, a major mitzvah. That's a wonderful and beautiful thing. So I, I just want to thank you, Chris. I find your story so inspiring for me, and I, I think that there's so much to learn from everything and everyone that you've been in contact with, and I just hope that you know, that you take care of yourself in a way that allows you to do the work efficiently without having to give up everything. And, you know, that's the Jewish side. It's okay. Standing's good. I just wanted to look at you. But mom, you walked all the way across the desert. It's okay. (laughs) So take good care of yourself, please. And uh, I I thank you on behalf of a whole bunch of people for doing work that others, as you say, can walk right by the people who need them and not mm-hmm. even not even stop to even smile. So you don't mm-hmm. have any pocket change and you don't have a sandwich, but you can say hello. Mm-hmm. You can be a decent human being, you know, and and that's our only job, right? To be a mensch, to be a decent human being in this life, which is no mean feat, you know, uh, and even all of us have our, our moments where we don't get there. But thank you so much for doing this with me. I really appreciate it. Great. <laughs> Hello.
1: <laughs> and, and
0: and stay away from Ben Murgy's There.
1: <laughs> he was a nice guy. He was a, such a nice guy. I think he became a, a lawyer.
0: Was he French um, or Spanish?
1: I remember him speaking French and Hebrew. I don't remember so much, but maybe Spanish. It was a long time. Like I was like 15
0: do you remember, do you remember what, where he was from in Morocco?
1: Oh, God, no.
0: Because we're no. from Tangiers, so we're, we're Spanish. And, I uh, don't. Do you remember Sonia Benezra? Yes. Okay, so Sonia Benezra and I, let's end with this. We, um, She's also from Tangiers, her family. Um, she had to learn French. She, okay. You know, she wasn't a French Moroccan. She was a Spanish Moroccan, so her mother went to school with my mother So CBC asks me to host Canada Day on Parliament Hill. And there has to be an English host and a French host. And most Quebecois don't want to be hosting Canada Day for CBC. It's just, you know, culturally, they were just like, ask me to do Saint Jean-Baptiste, but don't ask me to do that, right? But Sonia, she was a Moroccan, Moroccan, Spanish-Moroccan-Jewish person. What does she care? She was like, sure, I'll do it. So... I, I tell my mother, I say, Ma, you're never going to believe this. I'm going to host Canada Day, and I'm doing it with a Benezra, Sonia Benezra, and, her, and I say her mother's name. And my mother just cries.
1: And she uh-huh. says, Could
0: you imagine that? How, how could anyone imagine that there would be a Canada Day hosted by two Spanish Moroccan Jews from Tangiers? That's how crazy this country is
1: yeah but that's awesome right it was
0: awesome oh yeah we had so much fun we just talked to referenced all our foods and everything we do and how we did it and it was such an honor you know to just go this place can be so much more you Mm -hmm. know. but for me the biggest piece has always been how do we console ourselves to uh being the settlers not not the original people of this land uh you know and how do we find a way to 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 not look outward to other countries and say hey clean up your act when yeah. the way we are here is it's a hypocritical thing to say because we have not cleaned up our personal act and and unfortunately the death of these children hits people harder but the death of the missing and murdered aboriginal women didn't indigenous women it, it didn't and to me that was sexism and racism in the same piece and now we deal with infanticide and that seems to drop the barrier but what will it take what bottom do we need to hit is the thing i worry about the most because it it all takes a toll on us spiritually as a, a country where it was unbelievable that two spanish moroccan jews were standing there in front of a hundred thousand people in parliament hill it was But that's just the beginning of what we could be. And I I just hope the work you're doing and and others are doing and Tom Wilson here in Hamilton uh, is doing as well, uh, that we can just continue on and do great work. So God bless you. I'm so happy to have met you and uh, you take care of yourself, okay?
1: All right. Oh, and by the way, they're turning uh, Becoming Naguset into a play.
0: Oh, Beautiful. (laughs)
1: Yeah, the Siegel Center from uh, from Montreal. I worked with them on um, something called the uh, Children of God about two years ago. And Tableau d'Ot. So they, they're they in the process of getting funding, and then we're going to turn it into a play and bring it across Canada.
0: Fantastic. It'll take, some
1: time. it'll take some time for it to happen. Apparently, it takes five years, but that's my next project. Plus, Wonderful. you know, Wonderful. saving the world.
0: Wonderful. <laughs> Okay. All right, everybody, I'm Ralph Murgi. This is Not That Kind of Rabbi. If you're interested in this podcast, go to my website, uh, not the website, go to the Patreon account. I've got some new blogs out. Uh, Patreon.com NTKR and say hi. Uh, you can go to my Facebook page, Not That Kind of Rabbi. And if you're interested in spiritual counseling, I do that as well. And just go to my Gmail ralphbenmergie at gmail.com take care of each other Nagaset thank you so much for doing this okay thank you thank you bye
1: bye